Have you ever been out in public and you're with your family, kids, you're having a good time, maybe even with adults, and you start to feel like saying to everyone, let's not make a spectacle? Well, it's an interesting thought because I've had people even say that to me. I can remember back when I was growing up of someone saying, let's not make a spectacle. And yet, the Apostle Paul, in the passage we're going to look at this morning, is saying this, that if you follow Jesus, you will become a spectacle. What does he mean by that? As the Apostle Paul is writing to his dear friends in the city of Corinth, Greece, and it seems like so many years ago, and yet the relevance is, is to me, riveting for us. He is addressing the normal kinds of problems. They've got conflict. They have division. They have party spirit. And he is trying to help them work back to this theme. The overarching theme of this letter is to walk in wisdom. Now, I would think that everyone in the world would want to walk in wisdom. I certainly do. And I think anybody that I've visited with before would say, I want to walk in wisdom. But he distinguishes a difference between the wisdom of this age or the wisdom of this world and the wisdom of God. The fundamental difference is this, that the wisdom of God, God is at the center of it. He's part of all of it. He is central to the discussion. The wisdom of the age, God is really not a part of it, or he is, for many churches and Christians, peripheral to that discussion. The wisdom of God is something that spans eternity. It looks into the future to forever. The wisdom of the age is for the very present realities. And so Paul is trying to, to teach along on this subject. And he's saying if you want to walk in wisdom, and we learned this from last week, you need to get the right mindset, the mindset of a servant. In other words, you see yourself as a servant and you function as a servant. That's a strange concept to the world. Because in the world, we think, if I want to achieve greatness in life, if I want to be great and successful, I need to step up or step over or step around or step on someone to get up and to be successful. And the whole message of being a servant is step down. Step down. And that's not easy for any of us to do. But that's exactly what Jesus did for us. You see, Jesus, who is God, stepped down onto earth to be born in a very humble existence. He stepped down in serving others. He stepped down to wash his disciples' feet. He stepped down to help the lame and the sick and the poor and the needy. And he stepped down to reach out and grasp your hand. He stepped down to be beaten and ridiculed and mocked and, and falsely accused. He stepped down to be nailed to a cross. He stepped down to be buried in a tomb. You see, but every step that he took downward eternally in God's wisdom was a step up. And when you realize this, and I think it's important to understand it because the life of a servant is the life of following Jesus. The very first words that he had for the, those that would become his disciples were, follow me. Now, where was he going? Where was Jesus headed? 
He was stepping down, 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 down. And I know for me, it's a hard thing. My flesh resists it. And what, what happens is, if you live that way, in, in stark contrast to the rest of the world's wisdom, you will become a spectacle. Your children, if you want them to follow Jesus, and that sounds great, you must also accept the fact that they will probably have a challenging time and be noted as a spectacle. So this theme that we have, walking in wisdom, the first eight verses that we're going to look at, chapter 4 of 1 Corinthians, and verses actually verses 6 through 13, we looked at the previous verses, verses on what it's like to be a servant, but we're going to continue that conversation. Here's our thesis. If you're going to walk in wisdom, you must become a servant and a spectacle to this world. So I'd like to just break down these eight verses in three ways. We're going to talk about the message that Paul is continuing on being a servant, the means to this walk or the means to this kind of wisdom, the means to accomplish it, which is important. It's the how-to. And then finally, the marks of this kind of wisdom, which would be what it looks like. Let's begin with the message that Paul has. And he's, of course, continuing from his previous discussion to say you need to see yourself in this light, to see yourself in this way as a servant. In verse 6 of 1 Corinthians 4, he says, Now, brothers and sisters, I have applied these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, so that, when you, so that you may learn from us the meaning of the saying, nothing beyond what is written. The purpose is that none of you will be arrogant, favoring one person over another. I love the way Paul uses this language, brothers and sisters. Some of your Bibles may say just brothers. Actually, in the original language, it just says brothers, but the, the meaning of this is everyone. And that's why we always have to understand context. He is speaking to a very diverse group of men and women, a very healthy um, really a representation of all walks of life, but they're not healthy spiritually. And he says the purpose, in, in, in this text, he says the purpose is to deal with your root of pride. And pride is, I think we can see from what the Bible teaches, the mother of all sins. And your pride, you're being puffed up, you're, you're exalted. And this is why I'm writing for your benefit that you would be able to overcome this. And then he goes on to say this. It's a very interesting statement. He says, so that you might learn the meaning of the saying, nothing beyond what is written. There is a saying, a quote unquote, and the way this gets introduced is, a, is leading into a quotation. He does this five times before this one and just this letter, and 30 times Paul will use this exact construction of a sentence. And every time he does, he's referring to something back in the Old Testament. You see, he, he's tying everything together from the past of what God has said through all of the ages, how he's developed it to the Messiah, to the church, and forward. It's an amazing thing. But every single time he uses this type of language, he will be referring to an Old Testament quote. 
except this one. And I think it's, it's still referring back to the Old Testament because it, otherwise it would be the only one not doing that. But it doesn't ring a bell. I'm thinking, where, do, where have I seen this in the Old Testament? Start, you start to look it up, and it's not exactly written that way. So what I believe has happened is they're referring back to an Old Testament passage, and they developed from it an idiom. In other words, just a way we say things. And the saying was, don't go beyond what is written. Don't go beyond what is written. And immediately what came to my mind is Deuteronomy chapter 4 and verse 2. And it says, don't add to the word and don't take away from the word. So what God is saying to his people many years ago, I'm, I'm giving you my all-sufficient, perfect, infallible, relevant word. It is all you need. It is what you need. But don't add to it, and don't take away from it. And I believe this is what was happening. People were adding to the Scriptures. So what is he really saying for them to understand? And I think that all of them get this image in their mind. They've heard the saying before, and the actual Greek word is graphe. We get graphite or uh, graph or drawing, or it means really to write, to write. And the imagery that those listeners would have, we don't have this, but they would have because this language was used all the time, was a teacher teaching his pupil, the student, how to write. Do you remember back when you were in grade school and they were teaching you handwriting? And I didn't, I didn't do too well in handwriting. But I remember there are three lines on the paper. There was a solid top line, solid bottom line, and a dotted line across the middle. And so you're supposed to get the capital letters and the small letters all within the lines. And this is what this saying means. Don't go beyond what is written is stay in the lines. Now, for them, their writing instrument would be a tablet, not like a electronic tablet that you have, but a wax tablet. And so the way that a teacher would teach his student how to get the letters exactly right would write into the wax and have the student trace over again and again exactly. And so the saying came to be, don't go outside the lines. Don't go beyond what is written. Stay within what has been marked there. And this is what Paul is saying. God has given us everything we need in his word. Don't go beyond it. Don't go outside of it. And don't take away from it. That's something that people like to do as well today. I think it's a profound statement. What had happened here is people started going beyond what was written. And it caused incredible division and party spirit. Now let me show you how this, this will work. We would say that if we read a verse of Scripture, it is a precept or a command. These are the exact words of God. If we take that verse and apply it to, say, a broader scope, we say that's a principle. But the principle is not the precept. And then from the principle, we establish a practice. Now, we do this, every one of us will do this in our lives. 
And the only thing is that what is authoritative is the precept or the scripture. When I make my personal application, uh, that's my personal application. That's how I flesh it out. That's how I work it out. But this is where we can get proud. We can say, well, you know, I read that verse, and this is how I see it, and this is what I'm going to do, and so everybody ought to do like I'm doing. So then you have this group and that group and that group, and, and they're, they're dividing over things that are not even said in Scripture. So let me give you some current areas of controversy. And I don't want to get us derailed because we're going to, in 1 Corinthians, we're going to get into plenty of areas of controversy. But let me just give you an example of where people will differ on food and drink. Now, what is the precept? The, the Bible says in 1 Corinthians 10, 31, whatever you eat or drink, do all to the glory of God. That's what the Bible says. So what's my principle? The principle is that everything I put in my mouth, every table that I sit down, everything that I drink, I should be able to do so to God's glory or for his pleasure or for God to approve what I'm doing. So the question is, what about pork? What about alcohol? Can a Christian drink alcohol? Should a Christian drink alcohol? Now, now people are fiercely divided on this. And so what happens is you develop your camps, and you write your books and your articles, and you, you've drifted away from the Spirit and the letter of the law. What about entertainment? God says to us in Philippians 4.8 that whatever is true and honest and just and pure and lovely, think on these things. The things that are of a good report, think on these things. The principle is that I, that I should not on television or movie theater or screen time be watching things that are not pleasing to God or helpful in my life. If it's something that is sinful, he, he warns against that. So this is what Scripture says. The principle is that I, I need to put boundaries my life and for, for my family. So I may make a decision that we don't go to movies, or we don't have cable TV, or we don't give screen time to the kids when they're in their bedroom, or, or, or whatever you do. But the, the moment that you make your practical application equal to the law of God, you've overstepped your bounds. You've gone beyond what is written. Now, you go beyond what is written, and I go beyond writ what is written for my life, and I think that's helpful. You have practical guidelines. I've, I've put those kind of barriers in my life and for our family that I think are helpful, but when I try to put that on you or say you're sinning if you go to a movie or send it, you're sending if you have a drink, or I say that um, you're, you're wrong in sending your kid to a public school. One of the biggest controversies we have today is people say, well, I, I believe in, in public education or charter education or Christian education, or I believe in the, uh, the homeschool movement. The teaching is the Shema in Deuteronomy 6 is that Parents have responsibility to educate their children the ways of the Lord. That's what it says. Now, principle is there. The practice is how you're going to be able to do it. You see how these things can cause division? What about music? Does a Christian just listen to any kind of music? What kind of music should be in church? 
What about denominations or conversations about theology and end times? And I could go on and on and on about where Christians divide. And they don't divide on what it says. They rarely divide on the principle. Where they divide is how we practice that or carry it out. So what had happened in this church is you have all sorts of these divisions, and it feeds pride because I've, I've figured this out. I know what that says. I know what that means. And so you start having this party spirit. I think one of the ones I think of most is probably what's recent for us is politics. Where do you stand on a candidate? Where do you, you and, and we could have an unending, uh, unending conversation on that. Stay within the lines and don't drift. So here's what he, he goes on from that message to confronting them about what's happening. And he, he does this in verse 7 with asking three rhetorical questions. And honestly, that's one of the best ways to address something uh, is ask questions. But here's what he says. For who makes you so superior? What do you have that you didn't receive? If in fact you did receive it, why do you boast as if you hadn't received it? So people, when they get full of themselves and their opinions and their applications, start to elevate themselves in pride and consider that they have some special knowledge and some special wisdom, something that other people need, and so they attract a crowd. It's interesting that Paul does not name the faction leaders. You know, he does use an illustration of, he says, let me illustrate it this way between Paul and Apollos. Apollos is a fellow preacher, pastor. And earlier in the book of 1 Corinthians, he talks about, is Christ divided? Some say, I'm of Paul, I'm of Apollos, I'm of Cephas or Peter, and I'm of Christ. Well, none of them were divided. So he's using that as a, an illustration. Are we divided? No. The real names we don't read, and I think there's a reason. He's not trying to shame these people. He's trying to help them. And I think to remember that is really important. When you're trying to help someone work through a problem of pride or whatever, shaming them or calling them out in front of everyone else rarely does a lot of good. But he's making his point without doing that. And then he goes on to contrast this wisdom of the world or the wisdom of the age that they've kind of got back into because you see what's happened is they started well. They're, they're new believers. They're following the Lord. They're learning to walk in wisdom. Now they're drifting back to the step up, step up, step up, step around, step over, step on to get up. I mean, they're, they're pride. And he is calling them back to step down in humility and to learn to be a servant. So he starts to contrast Paul and Apollos compared to the way they're living. They're, they're really having a desire to be noted and respected, um, not to be a spectacle, but to be kind of uh, admired. And you know, all of us want that, but, but if you let that drive what you're doing over God being pleased or glorifying God, 
It's better when God looks down and smiles on us than we get the smile of the world. And this is what he does now in contrasting it. This is in verses 8 to 16. Let me read this. And this is a little sarcastic, but I think it's, it's to make his point. He says, you are already full. You're already rich. You've begun to reign as kings without us. And I wish you did reign so that we could also reign with you. For I think God has displayed us, and he's making a point here. He, he's, God has displayed us or pointed something out, the apostles, in the last place, like men condemned to die. This was a common practice in that day that when there'd be a great parade procession, you'd have the conquerors, the victors, and the most noted people in the front of the parade, and at the very end were those who had been conquered the slaves, the off-scouring, dragging them in in chains. And so in the parade of people, Paul is saying, we're at the back, here at the front. We're the off-scouring. We are the spectacle. So, and then he goes on to say, we have become a spectacle to the world. The word is theater. It's like you're on display, both to angels and to people. We are fools for Christ, but you are wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are distinguished, but we are dishonored. Up to the present hour, we both hung, were hungry and thirsty. We're poorly clothed, roughly treated, homeless. We labor working with our own hands. When we are reviled, we bless. When we're persecuted, we endure it. When we're slandered, we respond graciously. Even now, We are like the scum of the earth, like everyone's garbage. Now, of course, he does write with a tinge of sarcasm, but he's saying, you're rich and noble and noted and successful, and here we are, the off-scouring on display like criminals in the last part of the profession, a spectacle to the world. And that's really what we will be when we follow Christ. You think about the life of Christ. He was himself a spectacle. He himself was cast off by the rest of the world, and we do follow him. So I think, what are some modern-day spectacles? Because I think that in in my own nature, I want to love God with all my heart, follow him, obey his word, and yet be, you know, well thought of in this world. And to be accepted, there's nothing wrong with that unless it starts to bend you to a world system. Here's some modern-day spectacles. I think young mothers serving their kids are modern-day spectacles. It used to be a day when you think a mom staying at home raising her kids was well, I admire her for that, or I'm sorry she has to do that. Nowadays, it's almost like people will look at that with disdain, like, don't you have a life? Don't you have any worth? And so everything in the world, from television to education to to the voices that she is going to hear, are criticizing and condemning her for not having value. You've heard the expression, the one who rocks the cradle rules the world. But that saying isn't very well received today. I believe this for a young woman, 
and I'm not trying to say it's bad to work outside the home or, or to do both. I'm not, I'm not saying that. But we, all, we look down in our society, I think you'd agree, we look down on a stay-at-home mom that is committed to pour her life into her kids. It's a sacrifice because you don't get a lot of immediate gratification with that. You really don't. It takes a long time for you to sense the joy of that investment, but I don't think there's any more powerful investment than into the lives of our children. How about the the man who doesn't take a promotion or a job transfer? So, and I and I think he he works hard. I think the Bible tells us to work hard and I don't think you can. You have to say, well, I'm not going to succeed in life if I do this, but who puts being a good husband and a good dad before that? It's rare. To me, it's a spectacle. When someone sees that, some, someone who's not driven by corporate America or making, just making more money, but realizes as a, as a husband serving his wife, just as his wife serving those kids, serving your own children, serving my neighbor, is more important than me just serving myself and achieving my own goals. What about the single person? A spectacle. Because when you're single, it's all about freedom and independence and doing what you want. you got all the free time. It's at your disposal. But then, yet serving. What about grandparents that go past the saying as, I've done my time, and to say, you know what, I am going to pour into my kids and my grandkids. I'm going to make that investment this day and time. It's a spectacle. It's different from what the world would do. Take your retirement. Go and see the world. Enjoy your life. What about the spectacle of the young serving the older? You know, I think we live in a day and time as people get older and older and they don't have the usefulness that they once had. They tend to be discarded. But I think one of the great blessings and privileges we have today is to invest in those that have brought us into this world that have before invested in us to God's glory. And we could go on with that. But if if you live following Jesus with his values, with what is eternal, you will be different. You will be unique. It will be a spectacle to the world. So that's the message. And uh, I'm going to take less time here on the last two points. But what is the means to get there? We have the message. What he's saying, be a servant. Step down. Step down. This is what it looks like. You're going to become a spectacle when you do that, but that's okay. How is that done? And I think this, that very simply stated, it's following Jesus. Remember back when we read in 1 Corinthians 1.18, and I think... Chapter 1, verse 18, we find really the the theme of the entire letter. He says, For the word or the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. In other words, those that don't believe, those that have never accepted Christ. To the rest of the world, this message is foolishness. But it, it is the power of God to us who are being saved. In other words, we... We've trusted Christ. We have salvation. God continues to develop that in its fullest scope. So this is what I would say, that the means to the end, the means to a life like this, the power to live this way is Christ and his cross. Christ is person. He is God come in the flesh. 
His work is the cross where he died on the cross for our sins. He was buried, he rose again the third day, and he offers to us the gift of eternal life. That is the power to be able to live this way. And we must never lose sight of that. I hope that when you read through the New Testament and you hear these calls to a walk in wisdom and to live this extraordinary life and to, to follow Jesus, that you realize that the, the means to do that and the ability to do that is Jesus, who he is and what he's done. Those of us need to walk in wisdom. Here's what Paul said, um, two places I, I think that I reference. One in Philippians 2, um, and we'll not go there right now, but he, it talks about that Jesus, when he came onto this earth, was equal with God, but he took upon the form of a man and humbled himself and became obedient unto death. He became a servant, and he served. I'm so glad he did. Because if he didn't humble himself and become a servant, we'd still be in our sins. Here's what Paul said, Galatians 2.20. He says, I have been crucified with Christ. What does that mean? I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Paul is find, finding his identity as a servant as being crucified with Christ. In other words, my identity is in that cross so that I am, like Jesus on the cross, dead to the world, dead to this age, dead to my flesh, dead to what is temporary, and I am alive. I am alive with a new life in Christ, and everything is different. So the message the message is we're called to be servants. We're called to walk in wisdom. The means is Christ. And then the marks, and I'd like to just sum these up with you. Um, when you talk about marks, marks on your body, there were marks on the hands of Jesus, marks on his side, marks on his brow, marks on his feet. And Paul talks about this in Galatians 6.14. He says, but as for me, I never boast about anything except the cross. The cross of the Lord Jesus Christ, the world has been crucified to me through the cross and I to the world. And then in verse 17 of Galatians 6, he says, I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. Now you say what well, the, the literal marks in his hands and his side and his feet. No, they're his own marks. He had been beaten. He had been stoned. He had been shipwrecked. Paul had scars all over his body from following Christ. So this was visible, but I think the marks that he speaks about are what are the identifiers, what are the indicators that someone is walking in wisdom, they are a true servant of Christ and to others. There are three of these that I'd like to mention. The first one, humility, humility. That's not a popular thing. You know, stepping down... <laughs> is tough because everything in my being wants to step on or step up or step over or step around to get up the rungs of the ladder to success. But the servant is called to step down. 
the same way Jesus did, to step down, to step down. And yet, that is the life-changing path. That is the path to real glory, to real success. And every child of God, every servant, every follower of Jesus should be marked by humility, not pride, not dividing off, not making my point, not drawing the lines of, of segmenting the church, but humility, true, genuine humility. Second word, maturity. Maturity. Maturity, I believe, is not just seeing the present fun or the present result of my decision. Maturity is seeing a span of experience of time past and looking to the future. You know, one of the things reading through the Bible or the New Testament, as many of you are doing this year, is reading about Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Joseph and how God loved them and built relationship with them and blessed them, and they were his servants. But you know what? I, I find a consistent thread running through all of their lives that God used to bring them to maturity. These two words, time, everything took a long time. And that's the nature of faith. The nature of faith is, is waiting, and we don't like to wait. You know, God could snap his fingers and do it right now. But there are some things that will never be accomplished in your life apart from time. You can't become mature apart from time. There has to be history. There has to be perspective in looking to the future. I look at Abraham having to wait, having to wait and wait and wait. And same with his son Isaac, same with Jacob, same with Joseph. It's same with you and same with me. I don't like waiting, but it's during those times of waiting that God begins to move in me a greater prayer life and greater dependence and a greater trust, a greater reliance upon his promises to see me through. So time. The second one is testing. You know, I, I used to read through it, and I noticed this. It seemed like every one of God's servants suffered. And I thought, I would like to volunteer to be a non-suffering servant. <laughs> Jesus is called the suffering servant. Suffering is when we go through trial and difficulty. There are many ways we can suffer. You think, well, God doesn't love me. God doesn't care. No, it's because he loves you and because he cares. And he is using those as instruments to refine and to mature and develop your life and bring you into intersections of where you can be used by him. So maturity is going to come over time and through testing to develop you to be that servant. A servant has maturity. And then the final word is unity. Humility, maturity, <clears throat> and unity. A true servant of Christ, follower of Christ, when he walks into the room, is bringing unity not dividing. A true servant of Christ is going to say, here is what it says. Here is what it says. Let's take the, the writing instrument and go through on the wax tablet and draw through what it says and not go beyond what is written. 
We don't need to. You make the applications in your home, in your life, I'll make them in my life, but when we come here, we're going to keep our focus. And I, I believe that even during this last year of election, that one of the reasons for Valley continuing to have unity like we've had, we haven't had division over this. Uh, I think it's just humbling ourselves before the Lord and one another and, and sticking to what the Scripture says, making the applications, voting the way we feel we need to vote, and so forth. So to me, it's just a great Three marks of a true follower of Jesus, a servant who walks in wisdom. Humility, maturity, unity. So, once again, our thesis. If you're going to walk in wisdom, you must become a servant, and you must become a spectacle to this world. But I'd like to end <clears throat> not with that. That's really my proposition. But with this question, is it worth it? Is it worth it? Because you might say, you know, it doesn't sound too good. Time, waiting, testing, suffering, following Jesus, nail-pierced hands, stonings, spectacle, being at the end like, like garbage at the end of the procession. It doesn't sound attractive, and, and, I, and I, I think there's a verse, a few verses in Hebrews chapter 12 that give us perspective on this, because I, I believe with all of my being that it's worth it. To be a servant, to walk in wisdom, and to be a spectacle. Here's what Hebrews 12 says, verse 1, therefore, since we also have such a large cloud of witnesses surrounding us. And the picture here is being in an arena, a stadium, say 100,000 people around, while you're running your race, who are these witnesses? They are those who have already run the race, believers who have gone before you. This is the picture, that have finished well. So we have that reminder, not just the word of God, but the testimony of those faithful ones. So seeing many that have, have done this, he says, let us lay aside every hindrance and the sin that so easily ensnares us. And, and here's the challenge. Let us run with endurance the race that lies before us, keeping our eyes on Jesus. It's the only way you can run this is to keep your eyes on Jesus. And it says, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. And then listen to this. For the joy that lay before him he endured the cross, despising the shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. I want you to recognize those words. The joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. So how could Jesus on the cross have joy? How can I on my cross being crucified with Christ have joy? Because I see the eternal perspective. I see the pleasure of God of what he is accomplishing in the lives around me as I serve and as I suffer. I see those who will come to faith in him. See, Jesus, he saw the smile of his father, knowing that he had fulfilled the will of saving the world. The joy was that Jesus 
was accomplishing the will of his father to save the world. The joy was looking at all the people that came to forgiveness and hope of eternal life. That was the joy and the joy of one day being resurrected and with his father again in heaven forever with all of those that he had saved. That's the joy. And folks, that's what we have to do. We have to keep the joy before us. This world is fading away. All the stuff, all the trophies, all the treasures, all the ladders you climb, the businesses you build, the money you collect, the houses you live in, is is going away. But what will last forever? Not the possessions, but the people. Not the possessions, but the people. It's not by stepping up to gain, but stepping down to gain more. Verse 3 that follows Hebrews 12, 1 and 2, it says, For consider him, think about him, Jesus, who endured such hostility from sinners against himself so that you won't grow weary and give up. You know what? I get weary. Sometimes I want to give up. I think this isn't worth it being a spectacle. This isn't worth it going through time and waiting and testing and suffering. It's not worth it, but it is. Keep your eyes on Jesus. Remember those around you. Press to the mark. And be my friend, walking in wisdom as a servant with that joy in front of you. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the example of Christ walking in wisdom as a servant in every way of his life, stepping down, stepping down to this world, stepping down to people, stepping down to wash the feet of his disciples, stepping down to the cross, to the tomb, and to me, and to those that hear. And oh Lord, when you rise up, you take us with us, with you. And we are able to enjoy that victory for all of eternity. Encourage our hearts with your words, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.